0: Welcome to our fifth and final lesson in our study on the book of 1st John. In this video, we're going to take a look at 1st John chapter 5, and I've titled this lesson and this chapter, Things You Know, or at least things that you need to know. Now, because there's so many things that we're going to see in this chapter uh, that are really important for us to know, and I hope that you already know them already, but if not, well, after we get through reading this chapter, then at least by then, you'll know them. So let's dive in together. First John, chapter five, verses one through five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so already in the first few verses of this chapter, we've come across several things that it's important for us to know. Um, And also I kind of noticed that uh, some of this lesson, it might or might not sound all that familiar to you because as I looked at my Bible, I had some notes uh, from apparently, I guess it's a lesson, uh, perhaps a sermon that I preached back in 2015, but I pointed out some of these things and and I started looking at the things that I pointed out and I think that they're still very important for us to look at. Because in this chapter, we get kind of definitions of a few things. When you look at verse three, um, of course, even up to verse three, there's been a lot of talk of love. Keep in mind with 1 John, we've seen a lot of talk about love And a lot of talk about light and really there's a combination of those two themes running back and forth Uh, but definitely the last half is talking a lot about love and here in verse three we find out this is love for God so you know if you're wanting to know kind of this definition i've pointed these out a few times as we've come across them in first john and i i do try to point them out whenever we come across definitions like this one in other books as well i mean what are you gonna do whenever you're literally given the words, this is love? Well, well, what is love? There's a bunch of different ways that you can define it. I mean, for example, you probably are pretty familiar with what's often called the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, that shows you what love is, and that's one way to look at it. But what about here? Verse three, this is love, to keep his commands. See, there's not this, this combating nature between okay, well, is it our faith or is it our works? You know, I I think that's so unfortunate that that has been um, a problem in the church throughout uh, the the centuries or throughout the decades, definitely. And that is, you know, sometimes people will will focus on one of those things too much, you know, whether about like, well, keeping the command or about having faith in God. Well, here we see that there's this combination. If you love God, you're going to keep his commands. We also find out that his commands, they're not burdensome. And He talks about overcoming the world, overcoming the world. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To be able to to overcome things that we face in this world. In verse four, we get kind of another another definition. So this is love. What's love? Keep the commands of God. Okay, so in verse four, we find out this is the victory that overcomes the world. So this is the the victory. Um, By the way, we sing this song, don't we? That faith is the victory that overcomes the world, right here. 1 John 5, 4, that's where that phrase comes from, that this is the victory that overcomes, uh, that has overcome the world, even our faith. So that's what this victory is. So like I said before, I do hate that there is this this contrast that we oftentimes uh, put between following the commands or having faith in God. It's both of those things. Uh, Throughout history, if we emphasize either one too much, we've missed the mark. But right here we see what love is, is it's the commands. And what is this victory? It's this faith. We also find out, okay, so who's gonna overcome the world? So there's a lot of overcoming language right here. But in verse five, we find out a definition of who's gonna overcome the world. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Does that describe you? I mean, it can. It most certainly can. Why should we believe that Jesus is the son of God? Well, look at what he's done. Read through any one of the Gospels and you will find out that Jesus was and is an amazing person and he has done great things for you and that still impact you 2,000 years after he lived and he died. But he didn't just live and die. He rose up from the dead. All of this relates to him being the son of God and you can have faith in that and whenever you have faith in that, you can overcome the problems, the struggles, the things of this world. More of that in later chapters. So already here, we find out definitely uh, what love is and it's commands of God following it. We also find out what this victory is. It's this faith, but there's more. Let's keep reading. Verses six through 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So in verses 6 through 12 now, we find out a few more things about this truth. So uh, some things that we need to know. The slide before this, we saw what love is. We saw what this victory is. Now in verse 6, we find out, well, who is this one that all of this can be accomplished by? Who's the one who came by water and blood? That's Jesus Christ. So who is the one? The one is Jesus Christ. And I also don't think it's by accident that it's John himself, whenever he wrote in his gospel, he is the one who included that bit of detail whenever the uh, the soldier pierced the side, uh, thrust that spear into the side of Jesus and outflowed water and blood. See, I don't think it's by accident that you have kind of that water and blood emphasis in John's gospel, and here we see it also in this letter, there is something about this water and the blood, and those things, uh, they most certainly carry over into our uh, Christianity. Uh, one kind of parallel that, that I often make of that, that snapshot in history is that's whenever we actually see the body of Jesus, and that's represented in the Lord's Supper that we take, isn't it? That body of Jesus, the bread represents his body. We also find that the blood is in that snapshot. Whenever that spear is driven into a side, out comes this blood. Well, the blood appears uh, every single week as we take of communion together. It's the, the cup. It's the contents of the cup. That that fruit of the vine, it represents the blood of Jesus. But then we also have that water that comes flowing out right there. Where does that water connect with us? Well, that water has an important part to play in our baptism. It's through that water that we are baptized, but whenever we raise up, we're washed clean by the blood of Jesus, by that sacrifice that he gave in our place. And we take part in, in in this remembrance and kind of this reenactment of what Jesus did so that we can state at that time forward, we are walking in a new life. Well, all of this comes down to right here, like verse six, we see this is the one. The one is the jesus christ and he is so important we see that he's he came not on human testimony he came on the testimony of god himself now speaking about that testimony in verse 11 so this is kind of like a a fourth thing that we've already seen fourth or fifth i don't know depending on how you want to count some of these things um let's face it the important thing is that we just recognize them as we come to them So we've seen about love, we've seen about victory, we've seen about the one, but now we see in verse 11, this is the testimony. Well, okay, so what is this testimony that we have? God has given us eternal life, and his life is in his son. I really like how verse 12 says it, and I think the first part of verse 12 uh, really helps bring all of this to a realization for us. Whoever has the son has life. Okay, so if you want to know about this testimony, if you want to know kind of our part in it, you want to know how we can have part in that is, whoever has the Son has life. I mean, this is so powerful, so wonderful. We see that it's God who grants this gift of life. Not only our physical life every single day, but also our spiritual life, our eternal life. Speaking of eternal life, that's another concept that we need to know let's keep reading cuz he's going to talk about this eternal life even more verses 13 through 17 now john says i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life this is the confidence we have in approaching god that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have What we have asked of him if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death you should pray and God will give them life I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death there is a sin that leads to death I'm not saying that you should pray about that all wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death okay so let's kind of approach these things as as we go because I think that here in this passage, I'm just going to openly, you know, kind of tell you this up front. At first, I think there's some some concepts that that might be difficult for us to believe. Um, I know that seems kind of strange, but that'll make sense in a moment. It can be difficult for us to believe, but we know what we are supposed to believe. But as we go throughout this text, like in verses 16 through 17, we're going to see this stuff about sin leading to death or not leading to death. Um, There's different ideas of exactly what that is, and it becomes a little um, unclear exactly what John is talking about. So we start off with something that yeah, might be difficult to understand, but we know that we we have to. And then as we go on, we find out that that we come to something that is kind of a little difficult to understand because we're not even sure exactly what he's talking about. Um, Maybe you have a better idea about it than I do. I I don't know. Let's just look at these things uh, together. Here in verse 13, I love this statement that we have. And this is one of the things that I I think that we need to hold on to and recognize that we may know this. In verse 13, uh, he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. If I were to ask you the question, do you know that you have eternal life? What would your answer be? Now, I mean, obviously, after you read this verse, you're like, well, it says I'm supposed to to know that I have eternal life. But, you know, really, before I looked at this verse. Sometimes we have a difficult time with that because, you know, I, I don't know exactly how it it is uh, come to us, but I, I find myself um, with this difficulty as well. And, and that is kind of sometimes we we don't want to so boldly proclaim that we have eternal life, because if we boldly proclaim that we have eternal life, then that can kind of come across as if we are being arrogant about it or prideful about it. Um, So, I mean, you know, sometimes we kind of, we don't want to boldly proclaim that we have eternal life and that, that we know that we have eternal life because we don't want to come across as arrogant. However, this passage goes against that concept. It actually teaches us, and in fact, there's numerous passages that teach us this very same thing, and that is that you can know that you have eternal life, but, you know, because you can know that you have eternal life, you can also know that you don't have eternal life. It kind of works both ways in this, and I think we as Christians really do need to rest on this great testimony, this great promise that we can know that we have eternal life. You know, if if we go the reverse of what I just described earlier about how you know, we don't want to come across arrogant, so we don't want to always boldly proclaim that we know that we have eternal life. Okay, if we want to uh, to, to go the opposite uh, of, of that, um, then, you know, that's not always a good way of looking at it uh, either in the sense of we are so afraid that we don't really have eternal life. or Maybe that we've messed up in this area or that area. Uh, let me just point out something that I hope is obvious to all of us. Um, you're human. I'm human. We make mistakes. So what it means to have eternal life, it does not mean that you are perfect. What it does mean is, is that you believe in the name of His, uh, of the Son of God. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. So you believe in the name of the one who is perfect. You yourself are not perfect. Okay, You're never going to be perfect. But you have faith in the one who is perfect. The one who has already overcome the world. He's already overcome death. He's already overcome every single obstacle that has been thrown his way. He's overcome it. That's why we we looked at earlier. Well, who is the one? That's Jesus Christ. It's the one who is so important and everything about us. So we can know that we have eternal life because we know how great of a sacrifice that is that Jesus gave for us. We don't need to um, think little of it by you know diminishing the confidence that we can have. However, we also don't need to be so confident in it that we become arrogant. There is a difference between confidence and arrogance. We don't need to confuse the two, either in the way that we act or the way that we think. In fact, this whole passage, if you look at verse 14, it's talking about this confidence that we can have whenever we approach God. I mean, if you just take a step back and recognize how great of a thing that is, in the Old Testament, the only way they could approach God typically was by going closer and closer to the tabernacle or to the temple, you know, where God said, this is where I'm going to to uh, to come in contact with you here on this earth. Now, there were some other occasions, of course, from time to time, but approaching God typically meant approaching the temple like that. In the New Testament, we have this great promise about being able to confidently approach God. And that's because of all these things, we know that we have eternal life, because we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. This name of Jesus Christ is what gives us salvation. There is no other name in heaven or earth or anywhere else that can save us except the name of Jesus Christ. Whenever we have that faith and whenever we have that confidence, we can boldly approach God. We saw some of these same concepts appear in the book of Hebrews, if you remember, and for the same reasons, okay? See, John is saying the same thing as the Hebrew author, as well as the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and all all of those writers of the New Testament, they're saying the same thing because the gospel message doesn't change. This gospel, it rests firmly on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We find out because of what Jesus has done for us and because of this confidence that we can have approaching God, we also find out the confidence goes so far that whatever we ask in his name, we're going to receive it. Yes, there are exceptions to that, okay? And if you're like me, you, you probably already start thinking, oh, well, you know, there's some exceptions to that, that maybe maybe we don't ask if we have the wrong motive or something. Yes, there are exceptions to this statement, but the statement is still true. Whenever we ask, truly ask in faith, then we will receive those things that, that we ask for. Uh, of course, if they're in the will of God, you know, because even Jesus himself, he prayed, Um, father let this cup pass from me did that cup pass from it no because he also prayed with that prayer he said not my will but your will be done that needs to be our prayer too we might have our own way that we want it worked out and it's okay to ask God that it work out that way but be aware that that's not necessarily the best way that's not necessarily the only way that's not necessarily even the way it should work out God knows those things we need to have within our prayers not my will, but your will be done. Now as we come to verses 16 and 17. It is a little confusing because he kind of talks about these two different categories. So let's make sure that we recognize a few things that we obviously can notice from this passage. One of them I think is so important is verse 17, the whole verse. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Okay, we've got to recognize all wrongdoing is sin. Definitely, okay, we get that. So whenever we start from that then we can start to try to figure out okay so there is this sin that does not lead to death what does that mean about this death is he talking about physical death is he talking about spiritual death and there are different ways to explain this and i'm just going to tell you that you know i kind of wish that i had uh sort of a better way of explaining it because it seems to me that if you try to answer it one way or try to answer it another way there still seems to be a little bit of problems uh, with it. But obviously what, what John was saying, it made sense to him and it made sense to the people that he was writing to. Even for us, sometimes, you know, we see these phrases and, and it, it takes us a little while to figure these things out and, and piece them together. That's one of the beautiful reasons that we are called to to come together as a church is because when we come together, we can discuss these things and be like, okay, say so I've been reading in First John, about how there's this sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death, and then we can discuss those things and build one another up by kind of looking at them and trying to figure out uh, what the the whole counsel uh, of God is and the things that we should be about. So here, there is the sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death, and he's talking about whether or not we should pray for these things. I mean, typically the advice that I give is that you know pray for people. Uh, you know, obviously. But the sin that leads to death, there's something different about that. Perhaps, and I'm just saying perhaps, you know, this is this is a maybe. Maybe that sin is just a, a sin of of such rebellion that they are not going to repent. I mean, maybe that is the case. Um, you know, maybe it kind of comes down to the point of of sort of that concept that Jesus says to, well, just just shake the dust off of your feet and move on. Maybe that's what he's getting at. About this sin that leads to death maybe it's that type of rejection of everything that God stands for and everything that the Holy Spirit stands for for perhaps that could be the best way uh, of answering this there could be other ways of looking at it but when it comes down to it it does still seem like uh, prayer needs to be a part of of what we do and maybe we're also looking at this when you see in verse 16 uh, another statement that's mentioned is if you see any brother or sister so we're not talking about kind of just people out in the world. We're talking about a brother or sister. And if they commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, we should pray for them. What type of sin would that be? Well, I mean, you know, the, the sins that we commit, those, those are sins that we aren't necessarily living a lifestyle of sin, so to speak, like always just trying to do, uh, you know, what, what's wrong. We're not, not in that type of situation because most of us who are brothers and sisters, we're trying to do what's right. Are we going to sin? Yes. Should we pray for one another? Yes. I think that's what we see in verse 16. But this other sin, it gets a little confusing. I'll just give you that. And, and uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe you have a little bit better way of working that out. Uh, but what we do see is all wrongdoing is sin. We need to avoid sin, most certainly. And we need to pray for people uh, that they can have life and that they will be able to receive this life from God. Uh, If we keep looking, we're going to see a a few more things that that might be important to recognize whenever we look about this sin that that does lead to death versus the sin that doesn't lead to death. Uh, There's a lot going on in the world in which we live. Let's keep looking. Verses 18 through 21 now. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And with that final statement, the book of 1 John ends. But there are so many things, even here in the last few verses that are important for us to recognize um i think that it that you do need to to notice verses 16 and 17 come right before this passage that we're getting at so now we see in verse 18 he's talking about anyone born of god that would be that brother or sister that he mentioned in verse 16 so anyone born of god does not continue to sin what does that mean of course we continue to sin in the sense of you're going to sin what this does mean is you're not gonna continue to live within that sin where you just don't even try to do what's right. That's the type of thing that we see here about being born in God. It means there is a difference between you and someone of the world who is just in sin all the time and, and doesn't care to do any better than that. Now, if we're born of God, we have to be different than that. How can we be different than that? We can be different than that because the one, talking about Jesus Christ, Uh, He's been born of God. He'll keep us safe. And we also have this promise that the evil one cannot harm us. Isn't that great to know? Well, we also find out a little bit of a scary statement in verse 19 when you look at it. He says that we know that we are children of God. That's not the scary part, that's the good part. The next part is the scary part, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, I'll just tell you that typically, you know, I'm the type of person who, I guess you might say oftentimes I try to look at the the world and things around me as, you know, the, the glass is half full rather than half empty. You know, I guess that's the type of person that I tend to be. But you know, there's a bunch of passages like this in the Bible that really don't speak about the world and the current kind of world powers, if you want to say that. And I, I'm not talking about world powers in the sense of physical powers. I'm talking about world powers in the sense of these spiritual powers, because we're, we're looking at something spiritual here. Verse 19 is not talking about the world being under control of, of like the evil one. This isn't saying that that uh, uh, that like Satan is physically the one who is, you know, within our government and then all these other governments. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a whole nother level. We're talking about the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm, the spiritual world around us here. This whole world is under this control of the evil one. And that would be, you know, of course, Satan, devil. I mean, he has a few different names. Uh, none of them are really good, of course. But the way that that we look at here, it does seem very negative. And it does seem kind of scary whenever you think about the world being under the control of the evil one. But what exactly does that mean? I want to remind you before you, you let that maybe scare you a little too much. Remember what John has already told. Remember 1 John 4, 4? There's a song that, that I even kind of mentioned in last uh, last week. You know, 1 John 4, 4. It talks about how Christ is greater than the one who is in the world. So the one who's in the world, yeah, it's Satan. Okay, Satan, he's got control of the world. We see that. We recognize that. And if we try to live our lives in such a way that, that we don't understand that or don't recognize that, then we might find ourselves doing something that we shouldn't be doing, you know, or or approaching things the wrong way. But here the world is uh, is under the control of Satan. But we know that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus Christ has already defeated him. Do we really need to worry that the whole world is under the control of the evil one? And you might also be wondering, if this evil one has already been conquered, how does he still have this power? Well, this is part of how God has has seen fit to redeem the whole world, and how he's seen fit to to work things out. Jesus Christ started these changes and and kind of started bringing in all of these great things, all of these new things. You know, in Revelation, we find out that all things are going to be made new. Well, that's not the world that we live in right now. All things aren't being uh, new. You know, they aren't made new. They will be. But this process has already begun. This process began With Jesus Christ making things new he conquered death and he raised up from the dead and he gives us this hope of being able to do the same thing so whenever we follow Jesus Christ then we are also actively bringing these good things these new things into the world and I mean yes there still will be some some negative things that we have to uh, to endure you know there still will be persecution there still will be hardships There still will be, uh, for all of us, unless the Lord returns, there will be a physical death that we have to endure. Because this world is under the control of the evil one. But don't forget that the evil one is going to be utterly destroyed in the future. He will have absolutely no power. God knows how to do things and when to do things and, and where to do things. God is in control. He's greater than this evil one. And we see that uh, that the, the son of God, he has given us this understanding. He has given us the word of God in, in verse 20. And we can come to him and he can be in us and we can have this eternal life because God is eternal life. And this final verse here is, is a thought that, that uh, I guess this is the thought that we'll be ending this video with because it's the last phrase that we come across here. And it seems like it's out of place. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And you might be thinking, have, have we been have we been talking about idols? Have Have we read anything at all about idols? Well, this kind of comes down to what you believe an idol to be. If you think that an idol is only something that you could carve out of wood or stone or something, and then that people could bow down and worship to it. Yes, obviously, we should keep ourselves from that idol. But that's not the only type of idol whenever we pledge our allegiance to someone or something other than god that can become an idol in place of god we find this numerous chapters here in first john talking about kind of the antichrist the one that is against christ if we side ourselves on his side or their side actually because we find out it's more than just one antichrist if we are on their side then we find out that we are against christ that would be a type of idolatry so we see that there's many different ways that idolatry can show up this whole book has been about loving god and recognizing this wonderful life this wonderful light that he gives us and the wonderful love that he has shown us and asked us to show one another so yes at first that phrase might seem sort of out of place. Keep yourselves from idols. But another way of looking at that, we find out that that's really what this entire book has been about, that we need to stay focused on Jesus Christ and serve him only each and every day. That is our task. That is how we can keep ourselves from idols. Let's encourage each other to keep doing.